Well, I think, you know, part of the fear is what if I'm not enough? Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm not, and if people only knew how much of enough I don't feel or don't think I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so our so- sense of self gets all out of whack, especially when we dive into that shame mm-hmm. of just I am, and then, you know, fill in any negative description. This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into spiritual conversations to help them find hope in life. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I try to provide my guests the freedom to talk about their questions, opinions, and struggles with faith, so the thoughts expressed on the show don't always reflect my own views. You'll probably hear something you disagree with or may even make you angry. I just want you to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show, Confession and the Believability of Forgiveness. The more interviews I do for Ordinary Voices, the more I discover recurring themes. One of those themes is confession and forgiveness. It seems to take a different form in every show. Earlier this summer, when I interviewed Carl about working with homeless kids, he talked about how much the kids he worked with wanted to confess things to him, things Carl didn't really want to know. But there was something deep within those wounded souls that sought relief, whether they were aware of it or not. In most of those kids, there is no God, no religion, no community of believers telling them they had to confess, only wounds in need of healing. Those children represent the unfiltered versions of ourselves. In polite company, we don't say what we really feel. We say what is socially acceptable and take our wounds to a private place and let them work over us for a while. This was confirmed when I interviewed Margie, a therapist, In talking about guilt and shame, we end up having a really interesting conversation about confession and forgiveness, both as it relates to psychology and faith. Her insights stayed with me ever since, and I decided I needed to separate this part of our conversation off into its own show. And that is where we are today, with our show, Confession and the Believability of Forgiveness. I need to give you some background before heading off into this show, and I'm going to try to do this without being boring, confusing, or a heretic. (laughs) The cross is central to the Christian faith. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, God from God, because as both fully God and fully human, he could bear the punishment for our sin on the cross. He died and was raised so that we might be reconciled with God, and having been reconciled with God, This gives us new and eternal life. As a result of the death and resurrection, we are free to confess our sinfulness so that we can hear that our sins are forgiven. Margie is Catholic and I am Lutheran. And historically, in both Catholic and Lutheran worship services, we begin worship with a corporate confession of sin, meaning the whole assembly makes a general confession. That sounds something like this. I have sinned against you in thought, 
word and deed, by what I have done, and by what I have left undone. Then the pastor declares the forgiveness of sins, and we are forgiven, and the service moves on. Many mainline Protestant denominations have something similar. Eventually we get to communion, where we focus on these words. This is my body and blood, given and shed for you, for the forgiveness of sin. Literally, we see this as eating and drinking our forgiveness. Yet, despite the central placement of confession and forgiveness in the Christian faith, some would prefer confession to be de-emphasized, kind of like the scene out of the movie Dogma. The Church has appointed this year as a time of renewal, both of faith and of style. For example, the crucifix. While it has been a time-honored symbol of our faith, Holy Mother Church has decided to retire this highly recognizable yet wholly depressing image of our Lord crucified. Christ didn't come to earth to give us the willies. He came to help us out. He was a booster. And it's with that take on our Lord in mind that we've come up with a new, more inspiring sigil. So it is with great pleasure that I present you with the first of many revamps the Catholicism Wild campaign will unveil over the next year. I give you the Buddy Christ. I think of Buddy Christ every time people of faith talk about the role of confession in the church of the 21st century. In many Protestant churches, we want it removed, or at least the language softened. In some cases, it leaves the confessing person asking, did I admit to doing anything wrong there? I like confession, so I feel way out of place when I argue for its inclusion in worship. I have a theory about why, but I'll let you know. My theories have no statistical support. They are merely based on personal opinion and hearsay. Listen as I present my argument. Were you a kid that got in any trouble when you were younger? A lot of trouble. Lot of, I, was, I was a bit under the radar. My, okay. Uh, you know, I had some training with an older sibling to figure out how to fly under the radar. Um, and I tend to be more of an introvert and an observer, so I could kind of negotiate around things. And I just thought that meant at the time I was somehow, you know, mm, I don't know, better than. I think I thought I was a better person than I really was. <laughs> Because I knew how to fly under the radar. <laughs> well, I asked the question because uh, what it, cause it, it's connected to guilt and shame and, yep. and feeling bad. Um, in, in the church, we are so hell-bent on getting away from confession of sins. Oh, don't make me do that. That's just such a bummer. I don't want to do that. And that's such a bad thing. And mm-hmm. it's funny. And my, my theory is I got into a ton of trouble. I mean, I mean, just, oh my gosh, I, it was just always, it was just pick the flavor of trouble I was going to get into all the time, you know, and I always felt an absolute freedom when I was able to confess what I did mm-hmm. and not receive punishment for it. So when I, when somebody talks to me about confession, I'm like, oh yeah, let's do it. I just, I just want to put this stuff out there. And and let people know, and it's okay. There was a pastor that I worked with that was, 
he, he never broke a rule in his life. I mean, he was one of those straight-laced kids, you know? <laughs> and he was talking to the kids at, about communion. He goes, you fold your hands and you look reverent as you come forward. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, when I go to communion and I'm receiving the forgiveness of my sins, that's my happiest time of my whole day. I'm yeah. not being reverent. I'm happy. I'm smiling. I'm I'm shaking people's hands all the way up there, you know, because I know once I get up there, I am forgiven. And I know what it's like to be in trouble and be forgiven. Yeah. And if you don't know what it's like to be in trouble and be forgiven, well, then you can look at that confession, that that public part of confessing or physical movement up as a shaming. Yeah. When I was in junior high, my grandmother was coming to visit, and my mother told me to be sure I was home by 3.30. She was very clear and adamant about this point, but for some reason that I still can't explain, I got in trouble in Spanish class. The teacher gave me an after-school detention, which lasted till 3.30, meaning I wouldn't get home until about 4, so I decided to blow off the detention because getting in trouble at school is far less complicated than getting in trouble at home. I was guilty. Guilty of not listening to my mother, guilty of not listening to my teacher, and guilty of not attending the detention. I went to school the next day, fully expecting a trip to the vice principal's office for 10 swats, a trip I was fairly familiar with. Instead, my Spanish teacher completely forgot about the whole thing. No detention, no swats, no letter home, just a nice smile from my teacher. How are you today, Eric? Uh, great. <laughs> I think about this every time I go up for communion. There was no confession, no real forgiveness, and no one paid the price for my sin, but I know what it means to be free. I deserved punishment, but received freedom. And it came at a critical time in my young life. Now, on the flip side, I know people always seem to follow the rules. They carried an infinitely larger amount of guilt and fear about the possibility of breaking rules than I ever did. I bore the punishment, they bore the guilt and fear. I think punishment was infinitely easier because it ended. Guilt and fear goes on forever. You know, when I, when I work with trauma, you know, PTSD and trauma, um, people tend to start to get symptom relief for instance, when I work with children, um, when they can start to um, externalize what's in there anyway. I mean, we carry it one way or another, and we tend to get relief from mental health and psychiatric, psychological symptoms when we can help find, help people find expression for what's in there anyway um and not necessary and and it's interesting when people are victims of abuse neglect the amount of guilt and shame that comes with it is incredible um and from the outside if you don't understand that or haven't been through it you think well why would you feel that way you haven't done anything well that's not how it works that's not how trauma and grief work um but helping people to um find forms of expression will it's incredible how um, flashbacks nightmares 
um, and other symptoms will decrease dramatically when they can start to do that work. And then when the guilt and shame goes down and they can really integrate and process that, um, it's, it's not their fault Mm -hmm. and, and they don't, and they can work through the shame Mm -hmm. and me just saying, Oh, you don't need to be ashamed. It's not your fault. That's, that's just not helpful. Yeah. Well, one of those things I don't think a lot of people understand is when some kid talks to you about some form of abuse, no matter what level that is, you really have to watch how you respond to that. Oh my, yes. Because they are so hypersensitive because that guilt is just heavy on them. Yep. And if you haven't been abused, you just don't understand it. And even adults will come in and say, you know, this is over. It happened 25 years ago, but I just... It's just still there, and, I, and they're ashamed because it still is. And they're like, I, I'm smart. I'm, um, I know how to live life, but why can't I get over this, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a certain amount of guilt that it, that's still there. Um, that people, and once they begin to do that work, mm-hmm. um, it's a- incredible how freeing it is. Or even something they're carrying around that they've done mm-hmm. that... Um, They've never told anybody. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly freeing when they can start to just own it. These are the words that have remained with me ever since our first interview, and I want you to think about them in terms of spiritual confession and forgiveness. She said, People tend to get symptom relief when they can start to externalize the guilt inside. Therapists help people find expression. However, me just saying it's not your fault is not helpful. So on one hand, confession offers an external expression to the person bound by guilt, necessary to receiving symptom relief. Not the only one, but one possible expression. Yet at the same time, a pastor like me can't just say, you're forgiven, and the person will believe it. It may not even be helpful. I'm just going to let you think about that one for a while. This kind of gets to the two things I was thinking. One, it gets to the beauty of your job. Yeah. To be able to say that this, you, you know, the path of recovery, not that you, yep. you can do it, but you know how to guide people to find that yep. relief. Yep. Um, the other part of it that I think is amazing, too, is the older I get, the more phenomenal I am in my understanding of God. Mm-hmm. That... I feel bad for people that only see this angry, angry, punishing, condemning God, because I don't even know who that is. No. You know, but this God that says, hey, listen, come to me yep. and confess it all, and I will forgive you and make well, you new. Well, and it, he already knows, right? We're not, we're not like hiding anything from him. He's like, <laughs> yeah. honey. Honey, I already know this, but just go ahead and say it because I think you'll feel better. So it's it's good, but I do know it's fine. Just right. let me hug you while you tell me because I know you need to tell me it's fine. Right. right. And you'll feel better when it's all over. 
Right. Terry, Terry did a, a talk. My husband did a talk at a spiritual retreat some one time. And he, he talked about God, um, being this guy with this great big lap and, um, you know, the father, like, you know, obviously the perfect father who wants his children to come to him. And he already knows all this stuff about his children. And, but he just rejoices when, um, his children come and they say, dad, oh man, I really messed up. And he goes, I, I know, come here, tell me about it. And you're like, oh, but I don't, he's like, come on. And his just like heart is just overflowing with pride. Like, oh, I'm so proud of you. Tell me about it and let me comfort you. Right. Just tell me, just pour it out there. Because I already know anyway, buddy. It's fine. Right. It's like the best thing ever. I always sit there and I think I used to, or I tell this story all the time about going out to golf when I was a pastor at, in Pennsylvania. And I would go out on Mondays and golf because that was my day off. And um, nobody else is out there on a Monday, you know, and before school is out, I was just by myself. But then I'd always find somebody to play with out there. I always want somebody there. And I never told them what I did until the back nine. And so they would just swear like crazy on the front nine. And and then the back nine, they go, by the way, what do you do? You know? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm a pastor. (laughs) And then they just like, the next time they sliced off into the woods, it's, oh, 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 darn it. Well, you know, that's not what you said in that front night. I think you have a different word. (laughs) I I would never bring that, never bring up something like that. I'd just laugh to him about it. And I said, you know, you, I I don't need to be present for God to hear what you're saying. You just know, (laughs) you you know. Yeah, here yeah. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a watchdog. I'm, I'm, I'm here. So, you know, you want to talk about something. Hey, good. But uh, um, but there's that there's that thing that we're hiding. And in the end, it always feels like the only thing we're hiding from is really ourselves. Absolutely. I want to take a minute to thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, if you find it provides you a healthy challenge to grow, please consider sharing it with a friend. If you're looking for something to get you spiritually grounded, I send out reflections on life Monday through Friday. Over 1,100 people are reading those daily reflections. It confirms why I started this podcast. People are hungry for a spiritual conversation. If you're interested in receiving those, go to the website ordinaryvoices.org and subscribe to the email list. This is a listener-supported show, and I'm working to make it sustainable so it can continue. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Patreon button on the website, ordinaryvoices.org. Thank you for listening. Now let's rejoin our conversation with Margie. And it was very, um, it was a, a beautiful process. And um, <laughs> I would go to the same um, confessor and he, you know, he got to know my story. I, we either do open confessions face to face or um, behind a screen and I would be behind a screen, but he knew. And I, I, <laughs> I, 
kept confessing the same thing from my past over and over, the one thing that I did wrong in my past. Because right? <laughs> <laughs> I was such an angel. Um, and at some point he said, you know, you can stop confessing that now because, you know, the whole idea of confession is that I am sort of the conduit to, to God. And he's, he's sort of, um, this has been forgiven. So you can just go ahead and, I mean, you can confess it if you want, but you, you really don't need to. And you really, you could just go ahead and start to forgive yourself because God, this is not between you and God anymore. This is just you. I was like, Oh, Okay, now I understand. <laughs> it was so freeing. It was amazing. Right. I can't believe you bored God with your sins. That's really what I <laughs> Can you come up with something like, new? Dude, you got to stop A person who had recently gone through a divorce once asked me if divorce was a sin. I was fairly new to the whole pastor thing, so I tried to be careful with how I responded. I said every broken relationship is a sin, so yes, but core to our belief is the forgiveness of sin. We declare it in the beginning of worship, sing about it in almost every song. We eat and drink the forgiveness of our sin in communion, and most sermons tend to mention it. I could tell the person who asked was not buying it, but I could also tell the one who could not forgive the sin was the person asking the question. It had nothing to do with God. I'll give people assignments in therapy a lot about, you know, I want you, I don't want you to do it because you're clearly not ready. It's a little paradoxical, um, but I'd like them to be ready. And so I'll say, you know, what would it take for you to forgive yourself? Well, I can't because this, this, and this. Well, I understand you can't, but how would you know when you were ready? And, and would you like to someday? Well, I don't know that I can. Well, I get that, but why don't you just, um, I want you just to, to ponder that, what that would look like when it would be okay. I mean, do you need, is there need to be some sort of penance or what needs to happen here? How would you know when it would be okay to forgive yourself? And what is it that we're, you're not forgiving yourself for? Let's identify that. Mm -hmm. um, and just even starting to name what they're holding on to is part of the process. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really hard one. And they're, uh, well, I didn't think of it that way. I'm angry at all these other people that really maybe I'm not forgiving myself. Margie poses a really interesting question, one I think everyone struggling with forgiveness needs to wrestle with. What would forgiveness look like? What action, declaration, or event would convince you that you are forgiven? And what's holding you back from accepting it? Because bottom line, you are forgiven. And most likely, the only thing holding you back from embracing it is yourself. The other thing I realized listening to Margie was how much our anger directed at others, be it God or someone else, is really a mask for the anger we bear against ourselves. So I asked her to respond to this. 
you know, I have a, um, I have a client that I've been working with for a while, and he is just, he works so hard to convince me that he just, po- he cannot possibly be forgiven for X, Y, and Z. Cannot be. Um, and he knows I'm not buying it, but I'm like, all right, well, we'll just go with that story. But, um, what do you need to forgive yourself for? Well, I can't, you don't understand that I can't. Um, or I, it's just not, it's, it's not okay. It's not allowed. It shouldn't be. These are unforgivable things. Um, so then I do talk to him about, well, what, what would it look like if you were? And he, he just can't even go there. He's so ashamed. The words of the Lutheran Order of Service and the Catholic Mass are very similar, with one noticeable exception. Before communion, the priest turns to the congregation and together they say, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. These are the words of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. I really liked hearing it. Listening to Margie talk about her clients, I realize I'm not the only person who needs to hear it. spiritual community um, and sometimes what they'll um, report to me and you know is these messages that they're receiving and who knows how the messages are being sent but from uh, maybe a spiritual um, counselor that you know if they would just pray more if they would just do this or that then then it would be all better is is the sense that they're getting now I'm not I'm not certain that's what they're directly being told, but that's sometimes what they can come away with if they're not doing their spirituality right. Otherwise, they wouldn't be having these issues. It's a it's a common theme. Not that I think that they, um, as spiritual communities, that's our intention or that's literally what we're saying. Right. But I think people can feel like they're falling short and they that self blame. Like, well, if I just did this more, then I would be like this. I turned to the instruction of my youth, Luther's small catechism, to see what Luther said about confession and forgiveness. Luther said, Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive forgiveness. Receive it from the pastor as from God, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. These are powerful words, but if you're struggling to believe you are forgiven, like Margie said is often the case, then Luther's words sound like you're not doing it right. And there is no freedom in that. Closed off our interview asking Margie a simple question. Why do you worship? being raised in a just a really practical you know midwestern way where um you just do and you just make things work um i think there can be a false sense of like i can just i can just fix anything or do most things and then 
um, I remember I got to a point when, when um, our children were little and I went, gosh, what if they're like all alone in the world and they have no one? What, what would they do and where would they go? And there's got to be something bigger. Not that I didn't believe in God, but I don't think I really worshiped, right? I just mm-hmm. took for granted and just keep trying to fix things and do things in, in a practical way. But there's this whole other dimensional dimension of where would they be and there's got to be something bigger and then just having some deep spiritual experiences that are just unmatched with all the awesome things I've been through in my life and um, things that I've gotten through and problems I've solved it, it just just once I allowed myself to be vulnerable you know speaking of vulnerability um, and that I don't always have to be so capable and then just allowing that the the power of God and, and feeling it, um, there's no turning back. Mm-hmm. There's just no turning back. And so it's like, I, either you're with me or against me. Well, I'm with, I, there's no other, that's just how it is. Three things I learned from my conversation with Margie regarding confession and forgiveness. Number one, people get symptom relief when they start to externalize the guilt inside. In the church, we need to help people find expression so they can fully embrace forgiveness. This will have to involve a healthy relationship with confession to allow that internal guilt a place to escape. Number two, just saying you are forgiven is not always as helpful as you think. Yet we cannot fully live without these words. Understanding we are forgiven is so much more powerful healing and life-giving than simply avoiding punishment like I did in junior high. Number three, believing you are forgiven is much harder than I thought. In some ways, as a pastor, I feel powerless about this. I can't force you to trust in the words, trust in the action, trust in the freedom, hope, and life they offer. While I may feel powerless, it won't stop me from exploring ways to connect you to a God who can help free you from yourself. I close with these slightly modified words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his life, in his book, Life Together. It's taken from the chapter on confession. This is the God who loves you for who you are, who does not want anything from you, only you alone. You cannot hide from God. The mask you wear before others will do you no good. You don't have to go on lying to yourself and others as if you were without sin. You can dare to be vulnerable. Dare to be a sinner. Because God loves the sinner. That's our show. I want to thank Margie for sharing and thank you for listening. Please join me next time when I interview Micah, a man on a journey to visit every national park in three years. But it's more than a tour. It's a spiritual journey on the open road, a way for a son to connect with the father he deeply misses. Until then, please remember to help me invite more people into this conversation. Check out the website, ordinaryvoices.org. Sign up for the daily devotions. Remember, this is a listener-supported show, so please consider supporting it. 
On behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening.